Welcome back to the Growth Guide. Today we are with Robert Brill, and Robert is the CEO of Brill Media, a media by agency that focuses on precision advertising for business growth. The company has been honored 10 times across the Inc. 5000, Financial Times 500. You're also a member of the Forbes Business Council and Fast Company Executive Board, correct? That's right. Writing about marketing and advertising. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on today. Thanks, Keegan. Appreciate you being, uh, you, uh, you having me on the show. Of course. So first question I want to ask, can you t- talk a little bit about your story, how you started, how you got to where you are? Yeah. So um, I started in advertising in 2003. It was actually marketing. Um, worked at Universal Music uh, while I was still in college. And we were doing, it was called guerrilla marketing at the time, but um, it would just be considered social marketing. This was uh, around the time Friendster was a thing, and we would go into forums and talk about the music artists we were um, promoting, like Hoobastank and Method Man, etc., The Killers. Um, then I spent the next decade working in advertising, uh, worked at Universal McCann on Sony Pictures, and, and um, 2013, I started my company, Brill Media, with the goal of taking the slew of opportunities that I knew to work for large businesses like Fortune 4 businesses. We worked on like ConocoPhillips and Bacardi and Toshiba, et cetera. So taking those tactics and those methods and practices and deploying them for smaller brands who didn't have $100 million a year to spend in marketing and advertising. And so now, um, fast forward again, 10 years, uh, Brill Media, has been on, honored on the Inc. 5000 Financial Times 500, one of the fastest growing private companies in America. But the success of the company has to do with you know hiring the right people, um, having great relationships, um, having great advisors, people who can help keep me out of keep me out of trouble from uh, making <laughs> bad business decisions, you know that type of thing. For sure. So. I want to go back a little bit on the difference between growing businesses large versus more small businesses. Yeah. So, you know, the reality is, is that every business, no matter how big or small you are, you'll have limited budget. You won't have enough money to do everything you want to do. So then the question is, how much should we be doing with the resources that we have? And that's a big part of the advisement component of our business. You know, our job is to run ads. Our job is to drive leads and sales and any good agency or media buying team knows how to do that right so that's that's a given yeah the question is what's the strategy behind it what's the thinking what's the communications so you know our a big part of what we do is that advisory to ensure that clients understand what we're doing how we're doing it and why it's beneficial to the business and everything starts with a strategy and the strategy helps you pro it, it keeps you from making bad decisions in the future. And it's a it's a roadmap to ensure um, you go from where your business is today to where where you want to be a year from now, let's say. And so all everything I just said applies to big businesses and small businesses. The only difference between big businesses and small businesses fundamentally is that small businesses don't have the knowledge of where to go to get things done you can get great advertising for a thousand dollars we offer it for a thousand dollars in ad spend plus five hundred dollars in fee to us per month 
We're going to grow your business with the same tactics and strategies that work for the big businesses. Whether you have a million dollars a year or $10 million a year, we use the exact same tools, exact same methods. The only difference is that you have less money, which is not a problem. And you're going to reach fewer people, which is fine because you don't, you, you need fewer people to grow your business, right? Hershey's, for example, did some consulting work for Hershey's a few years ago. And, you know, they need to reach 20 million people a week or a day or something like that, like some big number. So that when you go to CVS or Walmart, you're buying, you're picking up Reese's or, or you know, or whatever they're selling. You don't need 20 million people to do something every day or every week for most businesses. You need like five, you know? Exactly. So it's not about the money. It's not about the quality of your product. It's about your ability to find the expert to do the work for you that you don't know how to do. That's the fundamental difference between big businesses and small businesses. And I'll also say not all big businesses know how to do that either. They also make weird, bad strange decisions so um but i think that's a common trend about not having subject matter expertise available to them that's fair so talking about the budget side i assume that's where a lot of creative testing comes in because i know in-house when we do our media buying we run very low cost pretty much like dollar a day especially on a limited budget for creative yeah. testing do you just want to walk me through kind of how you guys do that and why that's important Creative testing, you rang the bell. All right, creative, <laughs> yeah, creative testing, you know, our approach to creative testing, and if you if you want to see what's going on with, with our creative testing, we have a 15-minute a video on our website, brillmedia.co slash creative-testing. You can get the full scoop on what I just described. And basically, you start with five ads. So we're talking about meta now, and we can propagate these learnings across channels. So, but let's talk about meta. You start with five ads. You create five images or video, five headlines, five primary texts. <laughs> and then what we want to do is disassemble those assets. So now you have three, you know, three, yeah, five, five, and five. And if you uh, reassemble them in all the possible combinations, you have 125 different possible ad variations. And now you have the ability to distill that down into the one all-star ad in about three weeks. And okay. so, and so, what that testing does is, over the course of three or four months uh, of iterative ad testing, you are going to start to see most of your sales and your leads come from that the your all star ads, and that's exceptionally valuable. And what ends up happening then is you can spend more money per day, per week, and per month. So you can start with a thousand dollars this month, and in a few months spend ten thousand dollars a month, and in a few months again spend a hundred thousand dollars a month, and you're your problem then is you're going to need more manufacturing, more customer service people, more storage, all the things to scale your business. Um, but that's what good advertising does. Awesome. Yeah. Another thing too, on if we're going to stay on meta, we see a lot of people, we clean up a lot of messes, especially when they come from another agency. It feels like most agencies get meta advertising wrong. What, in your experience, do companies get wrong the most? Get wrong the most. Um, you know, I think the, the common trend on meta, and so, look, I think, I think you have a perspective on meta advertising. We have a perspective. It, it might be the same, might be different. It's, it's hard to tell. But 
there's a few things. I think you want to train Meta's machine learning algorithm to find your best customer. So broad targeting is going to be very important for us. Um, we we don't like when we see a lot of a lot of very narrow targeting on on campaigns. That's one component. The next component is going to be just a big mess in Meta. Um, no naming conventions or unclear naming conventions. Um, the other thing is, you know, we really want to have the opportunity to run full funnel advertising, right? Because if you just focus on remarketing, you're going to eventually um, dry up your demand. Like you're not populating the top of the funnel. And as a result of that, you're going to, it's going to be harder to, you, you're not going to have the people to convert into a customer. So whether, whether it's other marketing channels like social media content posting or um, SMS or email marketing, advertising is also a really good place to start consumer journeys. So when we see, when clients come to us and say, well, our remarketing isn't doing as well as it used to, that's a clear indicator that, um, well, that could, be, that could be a few things, but it's a clear indicator that they need more people at the top of the funnel to sort of start to think about your business so that in the future you're Search engine optimization is going to perform better. Your Google ad, your paid, your paid media on Google are going to perform better, and your remarketing ads, et cetera, are going to perform better on Meta. Awesome. Yeah, we, we're definitely pretty similar on our perspective for Meta. We're the same way. We like to let the algorithm kind of do the work, make sure we're passing the conversions through so it auto-optimize for better leads. Because a lot of times with Meta that I've found, it's sometimes you get into the issue where it's like, sales will blame marketing and vice versa marketing we're bringing you leads you're just not closing them sales you're bringing us bad leads a lot of times that's because they're not passing the conversion data back and letting the algorithm do the work for them 100 percent. so switching to TikTok, you mentioned earlier that a lot of like your strategies that you guys use are omni-channel is there any difference in TikTok that you guys found yeah i mean um you're you're definitely looking at a classic funnel on TikTok. you know TikTok advertising can be accelerated if you have good content i mean so that's sort of a it's an obvious blanket statement to many people creative is king media is queen so of course you're going to need good creative so that's what i mean to say is if you're constantly posting on TikTok, and you're going to have a relative level of virality across your content those pieces of content should be turned into ads so that's the first thing like you can you can basically do creative testing for free and market testing for free just by posting. So that's number one. Um, number two, I love one of the things I really enjoy doing is so I, I I do the marketing for our firm. I don't do all of it, but like I'll I'll develop the creative. Uh, I'm looking at landing pages. I'm developing um, content because uh, it's something I really enjoy doing. It keeps me connected to advertising. Um, and then we have some of our media buyers running the, the intricacies of, of these campaigns. Anyway, one of the things I'm really enjoying doing right now is taking a, a piece of uh, content, like a four minute video and turning them on as different, like with different intros and different hooks, same piece of content. And I, I start to use uh, Descript uh, to make that happen. It's pretty straightforward. I love Descript. Oh yeah. Uh, um, and that's a lot of fun for me. Cause it's like, man, I can really say, I can get the same general idea across in uh, in a few with a few different ways, and I I find that just so so much fun to have control over. For sure, I mean I mean a lot of things that we're seeing with video content, at least kind of on our end, it's 
sure it's creative testing, but it's like a lot of like different videos where it's like, like what you're doing, you're testing the hook. Like, obviously, you know, there's three components to a good one minute video hook body call to action. A lot of people aren't testing those components rather than just different videos as a whole. hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, but TikTok does well for conversions. Um, and I think, um, you know, yeah. Ongoing creative testing is important. It's good for short sprint campaigns and long-term campaigns. For sure. So I want to switch to a little bit about you and your entrepreneurship, entrepreneurial journey. Sorry. What lessons can you speak to uh, after being a business owner for 10 years, specifically to younger people like me or who are just kind of getting going? Yeah. Um, You know, I have the feeling that some of these lessons, um, look, I think you, I hope you probably learned them earlier than it, than I did. So just for context, I started my business in 2013 and I was, I think 32 at the time. Yeah. 10 years. I'm 42 now. Okay, so um, mindset is very important. So it's, you're gonna fail, everyone's gonna fail. And that's okay. Like, you know, I spent 10 years learning about things, which means making mostly good decisions, some bad decisions throughout my career. And then I started my company. So I, I learned. And corporate America is depending on where you work, it's very different. Like there's some organizations that are very um, combative, internally combative on purpose because they, the, the strategy, the <coughs> internal management strategy is essentially um, let everyone fend for themselves and fight themselves. And you're going to get the best ideas out of those people who are competing internally. Uh, that seems like a very uncomfortable situation to be in. Uh, and I don't like office politics and things like that. So it's, it's hard in my opinion to be in corporate America and be okay with failing um, because you have judgment and you have comparisons and you're looking at what other people are doing. This other person, they've been in advert, you know, they've been in the business for whatever business you're in. It doesn't have to be advertising. They've been in the business for two years and look, they have this big title. Uh, and it, you presume they're getting paid more, but they may or may not actually be getting paid more. That's a whole different thing. But you start, you know, comparing it to other people and being afraid to fail. So mindset is important. Entrepreneur, entrepreneurship is about having the spirit to to thread through things that are difficult. And a lot of it is going to be how you react to the failures that actually are going to determine whether or not you're successful. You're going to fail. So when you fail, what do you do? Do you give up? Do you, do you learn something, et cetera? So that's one component. The next thing I would say is, you know, I learned how to win and how to take risks. Um, I'm a relatively risk averse person, um, which is kind of odd for being an entrepreneur uh, and taking risks running a business. Um, but what I've learned over the years is that the risk, the feeling of the risk. So, so when I talk about feeling of risk, I'm going to boil it down to something very simple. It's like, how tense do I feel? How anxious does this thing make me feel? And that anxiousness or that this, this feeling of, 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 of being anxious, okay, that feeling doesn't change but the level of risk might change. So the risk, for example, we hired our first person. And I was like, oh man, it's going to be crazy having another person. I'm responsible for their salary. That was a really anxious moment for me. 
but now we have a far bigger team and you know, a 20 person team. And it's like, yeah, now I'm responsible for the livelihoods of 20 people. <laughs> uh, and that doesn't feel, that doesn't feel particularly challenging for me, you know, um, you know, turning on new solutions or capabilities. Um, there's, there's, there may be a financial risk involved or paying for something that, you know, you weren't expecting to pay for, like that's a risk. So I think, you know, when I look at people like Elon Musk buying Twitter for $40 billion or whatever, yeah, that's a big chunk of his network, net worth. It's not about the amount of money. It's about how much money is it to you. That's the level of risk. And that never changes. You're always going to be able to have opportunities to take bigger risks that would have seemed unfathomable five and 10 years ago. So mindset, risk, hiring at the right time is very important. Those are all things that I think, you know, I've learned throughout the years. And it's the reason why I do this job. I actually want to take those responsibilities. I like the magnitude of responsibility. I wanted to create that opportunity for myself. But I didn't think I'd get it anywhere else. And, you know, it's worked out. <laughs> That's honestly some really good advice. And I think a lot of people can take that, especially on the failing part. A lot of people feel like they're afraid to fail, which is why they won't take risks, which is why they're stuck at a certain say financial or whatever, where they're stuck, regardless of where they are in life or business as well. Yeah, so the one thing I want to, the one thing I want to ask is a little bit about your leadership and culture in the office. Cause you mentioned you have a team of 20. Are they mostly in person, all in person? No, uh, there's plenty of people I've never met on our, on okay. our team based of, you know, in person. <laughs> We're, <all> remote. <laughs> We're remote on purpose because, um, the last job I had, I had like an hour and a half commute each way in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. It wasn't that far in distance. It just took forever because of the freeways. Yeah. Like, I don't want any, I don't want to, I don't want that anymore. So this was, you know, we started in 2013. So it's it, long enough before COVID that we were, do, we can, we can honestly say, say that it was our decision to do, not just a happenstance. Um, yeah. And so culture, you know, Culture's evolved. I, it's tough because, you know, I've had to transition be, from being an employee to being a business owner to being the CEO. And there's different, you know, as, as an employee, you know, you want to be hardworking. You want to make sure that you're being, I, my perspective on being an employee was I want to ensure that my bosses understand that I'm working hard and that I have their best intentions in mind and I'm going to go overboard to ensure that things are things are good if I if I value the job. But it's on a whole other level being the owner of the business. So I would just trudge along, work hard, and then I hire people and I had to understand that you know they're they're going to work hard. I hired great people. But I can't expect them to do the things that I'm doing on a routine basis. Um and that's okay. So one of the things that really hurt us when we started hiring was we didn't have a standard operating procedure. I hired smart people. I knew they were smart. Some of them I worked with in the past, but it didn't work out because it was too, um, too chaotic in the early days of our business. And like, we didn't have a communication system. Like at one point, Facebook had a, like a Slack-like tool or something. Like we used that. Uh, and it was like we chatted on text. It was a mess. And 
it took me like six or eight months to like bang my head against the wall to to just understand that it's a mess. Excuse me. And then another like nine months, and then like another four months to hire the right person to solve the problem I now figured out I have, which is I have no SOP. Then another nine months, right? So it's it's like, you know, nine, 13, like 18 months. It's like a year and a half of of mostly pain um, to realize that you need a standard operating procedure. And once we got that taken care of, we were able to scale. So, SOP, you know, and it sounds kind of like, it sounds kind of boring SOP. Like, who, you know, I didn't get into business for SOPs or, <laughs> you know, to deal with billing or invoices, right? But what SOPs does is it creates, it creates harmony. People know their, people know when their job, when, when, when they're on and they know what they need to accomplish and they know when their job ends and then someone else's starts in terms of responsibilities on a given project. So having, so throttling down the level of chaoticness in our business helped people feel more comfortable with the work that we were doing and enjoying the work that they were doing. So that's a part of creating a stable environment relating to culture. The next step was me doing introspection to understand what I'm good at and what I'm not good at. And um, what's interesting to me is I've had people tell me that they're scared of me, like professionally. I'm like, why? I'm such a nice guy. <laughs> like, but tell your face that because my face looks like I'm like staring into your soul. And it's like, yeah, I'm just working hard. I'm like, I'm, I'm into something. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get things done and I'm going to hold, hold you accountable. And I hope you, I hope we can all succeed together. Right? Like I want the best for my people. But what I've learned is that, you know, we have a really amazing chief operating officer and she, she balances me out from the, from the empathy perspective. So she teaches me how to be a better leader because the team loves her and she loves the team. And I'm just working. I'm just pounding. I'm working on nights. I'm working on the weekends. You know, like, I'm just like, hey, did we get this thing down or this other thing? And our CEO is like, how you feeling? How you doing? Just checking in. Let's have our meeting. Tell me what's going on. Like a very different part of our business. So when I look at culture, I look at hiring the right people and being able to give them the autonomy to succeed as much as I possibly can whether it's with culture or work or deliverables or clients or whatever the case is. So I think our culture has come a long way and it's good because we have, we have, we have a team of people who stay together because they like working with each other. I'm not a bad boss. I'm also not in the weeds every day at this point, but it's they're there for themselves. And I can say that our chief operating officer built that, not me. Okay. I mean, hiring great people. I mean, it sounds like you got, uh, you're pretty thankful and you got kind of lucky getting her. It sounds like she's great. We cultivated. I yeah. Mean, she, our, our COO started as an account manager. Okay. You know, so like, and that's, the, that's another thing I learned going back to one of the early questions. Like, you know, there's, there's massive dividends in hiring people that stay put with the business for a long time. So, I had, so prior to this, I had hired someone who stayed with us for six months. I was really upset when she left. 
And I was upset because like, you know, why aren't you, you know, why aren't you up for the challenge anyway? Um, but that was a me, that was me creating a, a, a sub suboptimal work environment. So now the fact that, you know, it, it, you know, as much as you can keep, keep the right people for the team and it'll pay dividends in culture, in knowledge, in the Brill way. Apparently there's a Brill media way that she knows what it is. And I, I don't know what it is, but you know, it's the Brill way. Um, but yeah, cultivating talent is, is also a big part of the, the success equation. Looking ahead, what excites you the most about the future of Brill Media, both on just like a financial side where you're going and then on like the new emerging trends on the advertising technology side? Yeah, I mean, um, a couple things. There's um, a, a, a larger selection of, of media channels available, right? There's, I just looked at this stat this morning. Um, the combination of Google and Meta had a 55% market share of Google of um, digital advertising in 2017. And that number is down to 49%. They were calling it the Meta Google duopoly, which is kind of like fading a little bit because you have companies like Amazon and then you have a slew of retail media um, networks like Walmart and Home Depot, et cetera, that uh, create advertising opportunities. And there's also um, more demand for streaming um, streaming ads spending like Hulu, Roku, etc. So more channels is more interesting and, and more ways to uh, reach audiences and drive results for our clients. So that's fun. The other part that's fun for me is, and this goes back, I think something earlier I said, which is I'm really here for the magnitude of responsibility. Like I, my, my wife last night, she's like, you're a business man. We were talking to what we have a five-year-old. We're talking to our, uh, you know, our kid. And somehow it came up, what does data do? And data's a businessman. I never really thought about myself as a businessman, but what's, I thought of myself like an advertising guy, and, you know, et cetera. And what's interesting for me is that it's the, the, the business of this is what's fun for me. It's not always it's not always easy, but it is invigorating in some ways. Figuring out the solutions uh, to various challenges, and one of the things that I think is really interesting right now is using um, AI. Uh, caveat: Hope Chat GPT doesn't implode, but <coughs> uh, with the Sam Altman drama, high school drama happening here. <laughs> but let's assume it it continues on or. Or, or it transfers to Microsoft or whatever. But the core idea being like the ability to make our process happen faster um, and let our, 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 our human talent, our people work on things that have higher value that, and the lower value things happen with the AI. You know, things like formulating a media plan, not, not the thinking behind it, not the channels that are running, but formatting an Excel document that's easy, just plug and play, right? It might seem easy, like you just have a standard template and you modify it, but you can optimize that process even further. So I'm really interested in using um, these chat agents to create bigger opportunities. You know, one of the things I did a few weeks ago is I created a, um, a copywriting chat agent. Um, you know, we're, our, a lot of our clients are creative firms. And when I say, mm -hmm. You know, like 
creative firms who package up our media buying services and go to market. We're not going to replicate that work. You know, they don't get out of bed for anything under $25,000 per project. That's, that's not us. We do media buying and clients are spending, you know, well over that, but it's for advertising, not for creative. So I'm like, all right, let me become better at copywriting by uh, creating a chat bot that gives me, you know, the, the basic principles um, from, uh, you know, from some of the best copywriters in the world. It's fun. It's interesting. It's uh, creating uh, solutions for challenges. Awesome. So I think we're going to wrap this up here. Thanks again, Robert, for coming on. I really enjoyed the conversation and your advice. Thanks, Keegan. Appreciate the time. No worries.